La, la, la. Hold on. Sorry, I didn't want to cough and I'm like, la. How's it going, sir? Oh, it's going. I am wide awake this time. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where we're celebrating the return of Hal Jordan for the first time. I mean, before Jeff Johns ever did it. everyone and welcome to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi there, my name is Sean Eagle, and my job on the show is to bring you coverage of the comics featuring Green Lantern and hopefully Guy Gardner, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004. And of course, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner are my favorite Green Lanterns. Unfortunately, we're not going to be covering Guy Gardner for a while. But we are going to be covering Green Lantern Kyle Rayner and, oddly enough, Green Lantern Hal Jordan, who, for some reason, is back. Because of machinations that happened in issue 100, Hal Jordan got flung into the then-current DC Universe, and now he's having to deal with the fact that he realizes that, well, things really didn't go too well for Hal Jordan in the future. 
Uh, it's an interesting and really touching tale that we're going to be talking about in Greenlander number 101. Plus, we've also got a second book, which was suggested by my co-host today. This one is a kind of, well, tie-in to Greenlander number 101 in the fact that the Greenlander star in it. It is Jerry Ordway's Power of Shazam number 41. This is a comic that, again, I should have picked up when I was collecting because it is just tons of awesome. And if you didn't know the person who is going to be helping me talk about the Power of Shazam book, you should, because he's a huge fan of Captain Marvel. He's also the host of Dave's Terror Devil podcast, the host of Pat Smash, and the co-host on Starman Observatory. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my it's my immense pleasure to welcome back to the show, Mr. J. David Wheat. Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. It's I, I feel like I haven't been gone that long. Yeah, I know. This is like going to be the uh, month of... Uh, month of j david weeder over here on the show <laughs> i mean you've been on the well not for not three consecutive issues but three issues pretty much out of the four that we've done so i'm glad to have you back and i'm glad that we're going to be talking about this power of Shazam issue. there is a bit of a deal that i'll probably have to ask you about because it's like part four of a storyline and i i kind of just jumped into it but i'm certain we'll get to all of that uh, once we get into the synopsis we will i've got you covered all right. Well, I appreciate that because God knows preparedness is not one of the things that I do. So as we normally do, I'm going to take a quick break here, plug a couple of promos, probably one for Mr. Weeder's podcast. And once we get back, we'll start in on our coverage of Green Lantern number 101. Stay tuned. Folks. Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, 
a guardian devil. <laughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? And we're back. And I neglected to mention at the beginning of the show that this episode is going to be coming out and posting on Valentine's Day. So if you have someone in your life that you love, make sure that you give them the gift of just one of the guys. It's it's the one thing that truly says, I love you, in probably a way that it really doesn't. Just one of the guys does not officially endorse giving just one of the guys as a Valentine's Day gift. Yes. If, <laughs> if you're thinking about giving just one of the guys as a Valentine's gift, I think you probably ought to look elsewhere. Or or, or or, if someone actually wants just one of the guys as a Valentine's gift, you have a very, very understanding companion. <laughs> <laughs> not roses, not Valentine's candies, not diamonds, not any of that lovey-dovey stuff. A podcast about Green Lantern. Yeah, if they're if they're accepting that as a Valentine's gift, you've got a very understanding uh, relationship, and perhaps a keeper there. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> but uh, thanks, so hopefully, for listening on Valentine's. Uh, maybe someone will listen on Valentine's. That'd be cool. But regardless of that, we're going to skip all the lovey doveyness and head straight on into Green Lantern number one hundred one. This one was cover dated August nineteen ninety eight and released on June third nineteen ninety eight. The cover price was a dollar ninety five US and two seventy five Canada, and the title was Emerald Knights Chapter One Coming to Terms. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Jeff Johnson, inker was Bob Wyacek, colorist Rob Schwager, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Dana Curtin, and editor Kevin Dooley. Our story opens with Green Lantern's Kyle Rayner and Hal Jordan flying out west to Hal's old stomping ground, Coast City. Hal looks forward to seeing old friends and family yet doesn't sense the discomfort that exudes from Kyle. As they reach their destination, Hal drops through the clouds, only to see an open field where Coast City once was. Confused, concerned, and angered, Hal demands that Kyle tell him where the city he called home went to. Reluctantly, Kyle relates a tale, one of a false Superman and a yellow-skinned tyrant who rained death upon Coast City, turning it into a smoldering hole known as Engine City. He tells of the grief that Hal felt, how this led to rage, and that rage led him to destroy the core, the Guardians, and the Central Battery. He speaks of how Hal took the name of Parallax, amassed nearly unlimited power, and tried to restart the universe. He tells of how Earth's heroes, even his friend Oliver Queen, even Kyle himself, banded together to stop him, destroying Oa in the process. He also tells of Hal's redemption when he saved the Earth by reigniting the sun during the final night and how the heroes memorialized him in the spot that they now stand in. Devastated, Hal asks about Carol and Tom Kalamaku, and Kyle says that they were lucky. They were out of Coast City when it hit. Kyle tries to console Hal, but he's having none of it. Blasting apart the statue, Hal flies away from what in essence is his future gravesite. 
Kyle ponders if he should head out after Hal, but decides not to, feeling that Hal has to work this out for himself. But all the while, he wonders how this will affect the time-displaced Leonard. We change scenes to Hal flying near a lonesome highway. Still trying to process everything that he's heard today, Hal's grieving is broken up by the sound of a blaring train whistle. Looking down, Hal sees a crashed bus sitting on the train tracks, with a teacher desperately trying to evacuate the disabled children before the train smashes into it. Hal zooms into action, and knowing that there's no way that he can move the yellow bus, he enters it and gets the kids to safety one by one. Landing with the final child in his arms, Hal apologizes that he wasn't able to save the children's wheelchairs. Exasperated, the teacher tells Green Lantern not to worry about the chairs. He was a guardian angel who saved these innocents' lives, and that is all that matters. Back at the memorial, Hal drops in on a paddleball playing Kyle. Hal apologizes to Kyle for unloading on him, and Kyle says that it's all good. The two wonder what they're going to do next, and Kyle frets over the wibbly-wobbly timey-wiminess of the situation. Kyle suggests contacting the Justice League to see about getting Hal back where he belongs, and Hal says that he's ready to take on whatever, whether it be in this era or his own. But meanwhile, on the distant planet of Apocalypse, Dasad gazes on at the reappearance of the Lantern who is called Fearless and the greatest of them all. But there is one who plans to teach him fear, and that one is the son of Darkseid himself, Calabac. And this is another this is another issue that kind of ends on a good stinger uh, and bringing in the uh, the four or bringing in the new gods characters into uh, Green Lantern and I I, I enjoyed this one um, when we last talked about Kyle he was dealing with the idea that he had no legacy that everything that he did was for naught and here we kind of get the reverse with Hal finding out that his legacy turned out to be just really awful, uh, leading him to killing those who are very close to him and then dying. And I think Mars and Johnson here do an amazing job at telling the story and just selling the art here. The art is one of the things I'm going to comment heavily about in this book. Oh, the art is gorgeous. And the story is, it's a punch in the emotional jaw is what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's there's certain panels in here that I'll get to uh, in, in a minute that just really sell it. And Mars' storytelling Yes, he's recapping a lot of stuff that we've seen over the past, you know, few months and even few years, but it's done in such a beautiful way. And Jeff Johnson, he's not really I know he does some work. In fact, I heard his name kind of mentioned in a recent podcast someone was talking about, and I guess he's still doing artwork for DC, but his artwork here is just beautiful and it's it's a bit more like Pelletier's art in the sort of cartooniness, but there's some, the wonderful thing I like about it is he's got some great uh, ability to capture the facial expressions. And there's just some really good examples of that. I think I know some of the ones you're referring to, but yeah, he's, he reminds me of Mike McCone a little bit Mm -hmm. in that he's not hyper stylized, but it's a clean, I think you gave it, I think you said animated. I think that's pretty close to what I would say is, Mm-hmm. It's it's a comic book feel. It's an older throwback feel. Exactly. It's 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 just really good, and it works. It works very well for the story. Um, starting off with the cover, it's 
I think the one thing that I really don't mention very often in artwork style is the coloring. And the coloring here, I think, is really good. The the new sort of technique that I guess they're getting into in the 90s with more computerized covering, coloring gives a lot of definition and shading to it. Uh, it also gives a sort of feel of shininess, as uh, you can kind of see on Howe's costume. looks where the light's hitting it. It's a bit lighter shade of gray or black, and the coloring on the statue as well. It's, it's, it's a nice uh, – like I said, the coloring, I think, helps a lot in here. It does. It gives it a lot of variation. The statue doesn't look as organic as the costumes. Mm-hmm. And that's thanks to kind of that ethereal glow that comes from the computer coloring. Oh, yeah. And then, if, then you have a very plain yet very textured backdrop slash, you know, floor, ground. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, with the color, with it sort of, you know, blending into the darker. Again, it, it looks like light is actually hitting this, and you can see how... As it moves further into the background, the uh, the floor or the uh, ground gets a bit darker because that's not where the focus of the light or the focus of the color is. So, yeah, it's good. Plus, just the general image. You know, if you were even a lapsed Green Lantern fan, walking by this, seeing how with his essentially his gravestone shattered, you're like, I gotta pick that up. I gotta mm-hmm. see what's happening here. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's one of those covers that draws you in and. That's that's what comics need to do. You know, they don't have to be pinup. They just have to have something on there that makes you want to go, hmm, this looks interesting, and this does that. Page one, panel one. This one image, uh, for me, uh, I think shows the difference between the characters of Hal and Kyle, especially from this era. If you just look at the way the artwork displays how they're both flying, with Hal in a very regimented sort of military pose that, that kind of defines the fact that he's been officially trained by the Green Lantern Corps with his hands out straight and his fingers flat and his feet together, so he's very aerodynamic. But Kyle just very casually flying with one hand to his side, you know, his hand in a fist. You know, I, I think it's it's a way that the art uh, is able to define each of the individual characters without really having to contextualize it with a bunch of, you know, word balloons or them talking about anything i think i think johnson does a good job at depicting the two characters here well on top of that you have Hal smiling jubilant ready to get to see where coast city is today and kyle knowing what what's about to happen is just looking very reserved trying to figure out a way to to figure to tell Hal. uh-huh and, and you can see that worry on his face and and that that like i said the facial expressions this is where it comes in on page three now, i mean you get this beautiful splash this two-page splash of them over the desolated well now sort of regrown area of coast city where swamp thane has basically regrown the uh flora and fauna but those three panels on page three where you get this image of how first looking confused and then saddened and then just angered and johnson does such a great job of depicting the emotions that Hal is feeling on his face. And it's just beautiful here. It really is. I, I can't say enough about the artwork here. No, it's, it's a, I believe they call it a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Cause you're going through this journey in this internal journey with him. And it, that was these three pages. If you were, even if you were a lapsed fan, I mean, beyond the cover, by the time you got to this, you would have been walking towards a checkout with this book. Oh yes. I mean, and, it, it does 
I guess in a quick way, it does kind of go through the stages of grief, of, you know, confusion and then, you know, mourning and then anger. And, you know, eventually by the end of it, how gets to acceptance. So it's it's nice that in these three panels, we kind of get that. And like I said, McCone does a great or not McCone, but uh, Johnson does a great job of of depicting it here. Uh, The next notes I have are on the recap pages. And uh, when I when I initially read this book and sort of took notes for it, you know, I'll kind of pull back the curtain here. Every once in a while when I have a little downtime up at work, I will read comics up there, but I don't like to take comics up there. So I've got a Kindle and I put uh, uh, CBRs on my Kindle and I'll read them there. And when I was looking at – when I was swiping left and right on – my Kindle with these pages like five through eight where that recaps what's gone on with Hal since, you know, the destruction of Coast City. The panels here, the little inset panels where Hal and Kyle are talking and you just see from one panel to the next with Hal just getting more and more dejected. It was like a flip book and it was the, the panels were perfectly placed and you just get the emotion in these panels how Hal is just falling into this incredible grief over hearing how his life just turned out to be awful and how he's dead. And Johnson again conveys it not only in these panels, but in the pages as well. The artwork is just beautiful throughout. Yeah, I did kind of a, a similar flip through. I mean, it is oh, this issue. I mean, I have small gripes about it. But the emotion overrides every one of them. Mm-hmm. And this was a gutsy story to tell for Mars after the whole heat debacle, after you know he was blamed for corrupting Hal Jordan. He's, he's now redeeming not just himself, but he's redeeming the character through this storyline. And it is massively successful at that. Mm-hmm. And well, and that's the thing that I guess since I was never a part of the heat thing, I was never... I never had, you know, I liked Hal Jordan, but I didn't have that emotional investment to say that when he went away, that he needed to come back. And the the fact that I also really liked Kyle as a character, I never got into the heat thing. And it always confused me when I heard that Ron Mars or when I heard people say that Ron Mars hated Hal Jordan, because over the course of the past couple of issues, 100 and this one, you can tell that Ron Mars has a love for the character and, you know, wants to try and portray him as the hero. And we'll see later in the book, you know, he is an incredible hero. And you know, it's I don't think I don't think Mars wanted to write a story where he killed off Hal Jordan. It was just again, I think it was more editorial wanting that to happen. Everything I've heard is said it's editorial. They wanted to revamp it and he was tasked with doing the job. And let's be honest. We all have jobs where we don't always do exactly what we want to do. Oh, yeah. Um, I like on page nine that uh, Hal's first thoughts are about his friends and his loves. And I guess this is a gripe for me. I still get irked whenever Hal calls Tom Kalmaku pie face. I, I wish, you know, I understand it's part of the character. It's part of the history. But. And, and he's even addressed the fact that, yes, it is kind of a – well, it isn't kind of. It is a negative, almost slur. And 
I wish they'd just get away from that. It's just one of those little things to irk me. This is actually, I, I, will, I will argue, I'm not arguing for the slur, but this is a howl from a different time before that would have been really recognized as such. So it's actually playing into the character and where where he at, is at in his development. Yeah, I didn't really, yeah, that didn't really click with me. But yeah, this is a young Hal Jordan. This is, you know, I think Thomas DJ and I kind of discussed this in the last episode, that this is a Hal Jordan that's maybe two years into being Green Lantern. So he's still got that sort of 1960s Silver Age type feel. So this isn't something where he would look at it as, in any way offensive. This is just something that he calls his good friend. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wouldn't have, I didn't really think about that. But again, the artwork, especially on that last panel on page nine, just the look of dejection on Hal's face as Kyle tries to, you know, puts his hand on his shoulder and tries to get him. It's, it's glorious. Well, see, then the issue, and especially that panel, it's funny that you point that one out. I got to thinking about if I were, say, a 16 year old me got to visit me today. What what would my thoughts and feelings be? And there's a lot of things I would be really, really proud of and really, really happy with. My wife, you know, a lot of the podcasts I've done. And then I think about the people I've lost along the way. And I think that going through that devastation, especially wholesale all at once. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I even have words for how that would, you know, affect me. Well, and and we're also looking at it from from our little, you know, just ancillary lives this is how jordan a hero who's done amazing things and in turn has turned around and done incredibly horrible things and how you know as devastating as we would think of that of ourselves as individuals it's amplified by a thousandfold for Hal, and him dealing with him this way is is completely justifiable i think mm-hmm. oh yeah I will admit, however, on page 10, that uh, middle panel, Hal does look a little wonky. I think from the side view, it's just a little off. But that's one of the only sort of nitpicks that I have in the book with the art. Otherwise, it's really good. It felt like it was it was attempting to be Kevin McGuire. Yes. And almost nobody's in the league of Kevin McGuire with facial expressions. No, McGuire can do can do facial express mcguire is the most naturalistic person doing facial expressions ever and i hearken back yeah i think i mentioned this before either off air or on an episode of uh some of the justice league classified that came out in like the mid to late 2000s that was the i can't believe it's not the justice league where uh guy and fire were leading ice quote unquote out of hell and they were just walking side by side. It was kind of the uh, kind of a parallel to the Orpheus story of, uh, I think, Greek myth, where they have to take this person out of hell, but they can't look behind them. If they do, the uh, person turns into a pillar of salt, I think was the original story. And the look of stress that McGuire gave to uh, guys and fire's faces was just priceless. It was it was perfect. But yeah, it, it, it does look a little off here. After that, I really don't have much until the uh, the rescue sequence. I'm kind of the same, yeah, because, I mean, Kyle's reaction is pretty much what we would all do, stand there and be kind of confused exactly how to proceed. Yeah, I mean, do you go after him and, you know, think of him as a threat, or do you just let him work these things out by himself? And Kyle know, gives him a little bit of benefit of the doubt, a little bit of faith. Mm-hmm, which is awesome. Now... 
again on you know with the with the rescue of the kids i could be i could be crude and the fact that this is that they're going for the sort of cheap um idea of these kids being special needs they they look like they probably have problems with autism or something like that and that just being sort of a cheap shot to, to play on your emotions but i don't care it works um again the thing with the yellow bus i would think how could have reached under it to the uh you know to the to the frame of the bus and lifted it up that way but it makes for a more daring rescue and it makes him have to interact with the kids as well which i think is really great especially when he rescues the the one little girl uh on page 17 as the train smashes in there and you can tell that you know if you've ever dealt with children that have problems with autism or have these sort of mental problems loud noises always always mess with them and how's just dealing with them perfect it's showing not only that he's heroic in in the sense of a superhero but that it, that he's he's also got a great amount of compassion for helping out these little kids it's i i just love this you you took i mean you pretty much took my note was uh, yeah they're playing on our our sentiment of course it's special needs children of course it's a yellow bus and of course they're somehow stuck on the railroad tracks but darn it does it work well mm-hmm. and yeah it 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 really grabs at you. And for me, it it really works emotionally. In, I think, uh, any other book with a lesser writer and lesser art, it could have felt really cloying. And it could have felt, you know, that they really were trying to try and tug at your sentimentality. But here, I think it really works. And the, and the fact that the teacher is is so grateful. And, you know, that, that Hal, Hal is completely and utterly humble in this. He's like, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't save... I couldn't save the wheelchairs and it's how wanting to do everything he can to make things right. And I, again, it shows that Mars has a love for the character. I don't get the hatred that the heat people put on him. We didn't have, I mean, and and I'm not completely defending heat. I was never a member of it. I remember their ads and other things. We didn't have the communication channels we have now. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of what they saw was, oh, we're going to turn Hal into a villain and kill him, and that's it. And Mars is the guy that's doing it. We had n- I don't think we had the level of conception that we have now where we regularly get you know peeks behind the curtain. We have Marvel AR to show behind-the-scenes stuff of making of comics. So it's not a complete defense, but a little bit more context. that It was just a knee-jerk reaction to a lack of information. That's true. And in some ways, I think... There is a benefit to having that information, to having that behind-the-scenes stuff. So when something comes out that is what would be shocking like this or would be something that would get people get people frustrated about a comic, there's ways of disseminating – there's easier ways of disseminating information to give people the bigger picture. You know, I agree with you. When people just say Ron Morris is going to turn Hal Jordan into a villain – and they don't have any context to it, that could lead someone to be kind of upset. But the fact that he's gone and turned Hal Jordan into the villain, he's given him a redemptive arc, he's brought in this new character, I think if people would have been able to understand that, I don't think the Heat people would have been as irate as I think they were at the time. Correct. I mean, now we have news bites on Newsarama or Comic Book Resources then, you had to wait for maybe comic shop news to eventually ri- arise, mm-hmm. and and Wizard, 
yeah. which Wizard never put. I mean, they they would add fuel to the fire. So yeah, well, and yeah, that's that's that is one of the things. I think Wizard was one of those groups that did like to. And here's going to be me going off on a little bit of a rant. I think there's a lot of the media that, in order to get attention, likes to sort of rabble rouse things like this because the more people are arguing about things and they find out that it came from this media outlet, whether it be Wizard or whether it be news media or whatever, it gets more people looking at that and buying that stuff and watching that. So I think it's just it's just kind of the nature of the beast, the way things kind of work out, sadly. Um, moving on after the rescue, I think it's it, it's a nice kind of comedy beat here on uh, page 18, I guess. Where is it? The, the page where at the top panel, it's Kyle sitting on the park bench just playing paddle ball. <laughs> In a very decorative bench. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, Kyle's, Kyle's very you know, elaborate sort of ring construct. So I like it. And I didn't notice this either. Uh, I just noticed this on the panel. You can see just to the right of Kyle on the panel, the shadow of Hal Jordan descending from the sky on the, on the park bench. So I thought that was kind of cool as well. But, um, Hal comes in, talks to Kyle, says, it's all good. We're going to work everything out and we're going to see how things go from here. And then we get the final stab at the end that Calabac's coming in. So did you have anything? Did you have anything else before that? I, I hope I didn't you know, jump over you or anything more, more overall um, kind of the pinnacle of it was this scene because I mentioned Kyle has faith or yeah, Kyle has faith in Hal. Kyle has no reason to have faith in Hal. Kyle is Green Lantern because Hal went, you know, nutso. Most of what he has seen from Hal has been parallax and to have Kyle not only, I mean, it just says so much about these both of these characters, really. Kyle gives Hal full open reign to kind of work out his problems and knows he's going to come back. And they know he's, I mean, Kyle knew we were going to get here. I think that shows a lot towards Kyle's intelligence and his compassion. And then Hal, you know, going through this and coming to that heroic moment. I mean, this is just a, a, an out-of-the-park issue. Even though, it, I mean, it plays on some weird tropes. The art is great. The character beats are phenomenal. And it just like I almost had a lump in my throat reading this. Yes, I I agree. The the rescue sequence, like I said, it could have been by a lesser art team and by a lesser writer. It could have been really treacly and very forced. This worked and it worked perfectly. And it shows the kind of hero that Hal Jordan is. And like I said, it's been a while since I reread these. But I can't wait to see where this goes, and I can't wait to see how how it's going to react to everything that has changed since he initially became Green Lantern. Yep. And and prepping for this, I read I mean, because we left, I was here for ninety nine. I went ahead and read issue hundred, and that was a good issue. This is a great issue. Mm-hmm. Like this is a what I call a snowball story, where it's just building in the right direction. Mars oh, yeah. is giving it room to breathe, so it actually kind of grows its own legs. And for somebody who had the poster of the of, of the cover to 100, the story lived up to that hype. Yes. So I'm like they're making posters of this, and sure enough, man, I see why because this is a this is an event. Mm-hmm. I'm I, yeah, like I said, it it has been a while since I read this. I vaguely remember it, but I'm looking forward to rereading again. I'm 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 glad that I 
decided to do this because this is one of these things where, and we'll talk more about this in, in the next comic, of finding your comic book joy. And I know this has been kind of a thing going around the podcast community of finding your comic book joy. And this has been my comic book joy. Going back and rereading these stories and getting back into these characters has just been so much fun. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be doing this. One final note, and this is just, just me being nitpicky. On the final page, on page 22, with Calabac, I'm wondering when he, I'm wondering when he got with access and was able to slip over to the Marvel universe and steal Hercules' loincloth and everything, <laughs> because that that is perhaps the weirdest outfit I've seen Calabac in, in recent memory. I think I think some notes got missed in the color. Well, no, he has hair. Never mind. I was thinking it was a coloring error. Uh, I I don't know. It just yeah. But he's got a he's got a hairy chest and arms. So. Mm-hmm. And when did John Romita Jr. take over art on this book? <laughs> Yeah, it does. It does have a very JRJR look. That is, that's he's beefy. Yeah. But yeah, this was just a phenomenal issue, and it's it's a great way to set up Hal Jordan being in the then current time and really show the heroism of Hal. Uh, so I love this. But we have another comic, uh, one that was suggested to me very graciously by J. David Weeder, something that I'm a little bit, uh, well, unaware of, well, not unaware of, but I wasn't really collecting at the time, and I might have to go back and start collecting this because this was an interesting story. What we're going to be looking at next is a book that came out in the same cover date. It's Power of Shazam, number 41. We're going to take a look at that, and Mr. J. David Weeder is going to give you the synopsis for it right after these comic book promos. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. <laughs> Look what's happened to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now. 
mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the puppet master's next victim. You bastards can't change the way I can. But we are the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord. Until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatans, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hold. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drained of all elemental life. So speak. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com And we are back. This time we are going to take a look at, as I said before, The Power of Shazam number 41, and the synopsis here goes to Mr. J. David Weeder. Take it away, sir. Yes, it does. Now, to kind of start us off, since we're coming into part four of a story, kind of walking in media res, to give you an idea, if you don't know the, the concept of Shazam, basically Billy Batson, by saying the word Shazam, becomes Captain Marvel, Superman-level hero. His sister, Mary, does the same thing. Um, they have a villain named Mr. Mind, who is a small worm. And basically, he multiplies with drone worms, he controls minds, and he used Sarge Steel to detonate basically an atomic bomb near Fawcett City where they live, which they thought it killed their adoptive parents. They were fine, but still, it's an atomic bomb that destroyed a city. Wow. Um, so they went to confront Sarge Steele, who hid his possession really well, because normally Mr. Mind goes into the ear canal, much like Wrath of Khan. But he actually hid it within the metal hand that he has. So Mary went off to Bibbo to detect the possession of Mr. Mind, basically to find a device. That's right, I said Bibbo. Because Jerry Ordway introduced... Bibbo's brother, who was a brilliant scientist into this book. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Bibbo's twin brother. Um, but with the Bibbo weapon, basically, Mary was able to free Sarge Steel from Mr. Mind. But Mr. Mind and his drone starts basically started seeping into every part of the military, into their minds, and into an old alien armor, which looks something like Kirby would draw. And as we're coming into this, Mind has revealed he's about to drop a nuclear holocaust on the U.S. And then he turned into a giant worm and buried the Marvels under some rubble, which is where the previous issue uh, left off. And that's where we pick up with Power of Shazam! 41. Cover dated August 1998. On sale date June 3rd of 98. The cover is painted by Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway. And it is pretty freaking epic. Mm-hmm. This is the Monster Society of Evil Part 4 Death Warrant, is what the official title is. The cover shows it as Mind Expansion, which I like quite a bit. It was written by Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway, with pencils by, I don't know if it's Peter Krause or Krause, because I know there's an actor with the same name who pronounces it Krause. Inked by the great Dick Giordano, or some approximation thereof. Lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Glenn Whitmore. And we pick up with the Big Red Cheese and his sister regrouping in time to see the giant Mr. Mind attacking the White House. Cap and Mary give the giant worm a throw, as elsewhere, James Barr 
Formerly, the hero Bulletman has some blocked memories returned from a World War II mission. In this mission, Bulletman and the Ted Knight Starman, yeah, I know that guy, went up against Mr. Mind in the armor that we just men mentioned, and Green Lantern Abin Sur helped them defeat him, and erased their memories of the event while taking the worm away from Earth. Remembering this, Barr calls up Alan Scott, because that was the Green Lantern from his era, to see if the elder Green Lantern can call for support for the Marvels. At the same time, Bart Allen, aka Impulse, hears about a standoff at a military base and he teams with his mentor, Max Mercury, to stop two guards from initializing a missile launch. But this is happening all over, and the Kmart brand smells like the 90s desperation version of the Teen Titans, and CM3, <laughs> formerly known as Captain Marvel, tend to a situation at a nuclear power plant involving Mr. Mind-controlled terrorists. So basically, standoff going there, that's not really that important to the story, but since CM3 was there, I thought we would mention it. And just as Cap and Mary realize that the giant worm is a basically an illusion, and Mr. Mind is actually still in his Kirby monster-style armor, help arrives in the form of Hal Jordan, which, given that Hal Jordan is dead, means he must be an illusion. So Mary tries to attack him. But luckily, Kyle arrives just in time to sort of clear things up. And Kyle and Hal put Mr. Mind on the ropes and begin to extract the alien worm from the armor, but get pushed back. That's when things get really weird, because both lanterns are seeing Mary fighting Captain Marvel, and then Mr. Mind smashes the big red cheese into a wall. What's going on? Why is the fight going this direction? Turns out to be more illusions, as Mr. Mind made the GLs think that Marvel was him, and vice versa, so they just tried to pull a worm from Captain Marvel's chest. Ouch. Yeah, that's going to be awkward. Regrouping after Captain Marvel's momentary shock at Hal, the Marvels and the GLs team up and overpower Mr. Mind, ripping the worm from the armor. But even with Mind out of the armor, there's a nuclear bomb planted somewhere, and the Green Lanterns fly off to disarm it as Cap tries to get Mr. Mind to spill his secrets. Unknown to Captain Marvel, a nuclear sub, look, I said it correctly, Shag, and I don't mean Aquaman and Firestorm fans, is positioned to fire on the East Coast via Mr. Mind's drone. So Cap squeezes the worm in his hand harder and harder until there's a groan and Mr. Mind seems to be killed. That's a psych out. In reality, Mr. Mind is still alive. His kind live in space. But then Mr. Mind is turned into goo by Sarge Steel and the Bibbo brother gun. And the day is saved as all of the other Mr. Mind drones fall over dead. So no missiles are fired. Teen Titans have no opposition. So essentially nothing to do. And Sarge Steel thanks Captain Marvel and Mary Marvel. But not the Green Lanterns. So we end up with a happy ending. Just not the ending you expected. <laughs> this story, again, was just a fun story. And I thought that, yeah, I'm glad that you were here to give a sort of synopsis of what came up before this. Yeah. The addition of the teen Titans, I guess that's a way to just bring uh, captain Marvel jr. Or I guess he was known at the time as CM three because he couldn't say his name. Is that what I'm thinking? You're exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> you know, uh, this is a bizarre time for the Titans. I'm certain Tom Panarese is just like, yeah, even I don't like this version of the Titans. <laughs> well, um, we've had, what, Risk? And, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, we've got Risk, and it looks like Domino in the, you know, the white with the bikini top. And, and who's like the Frankenstein Hulk there? 
I don't even know who that is. Oh, that's Frankenstein Hulk. Oh, well. yeah, no. Oh, <laughs> I, guess, <laughs> I, know, I, know. I um, remember seeing that cover for that book and going, no, nah, not for me. Mm-hmm. I guess Speedy's there or uh, I guess Arsenal or, you know, whatever he's going by this time out. But yeah, they were completely unnecessary in the book unless you wanted to have, you know, Captain Marvel Jr. in here. But I, I had a blast with this book even being a little bit lost i don't think there's i don't think it's so difficult for you to understand what's going on mr mind is messing with people uh there's a possibility of nuclear explosions and the marbles are beating the crap out of people i think that's a pretty straightforward story and i just love it and uh i guess the only complaint i i could have and it's really an unjustified complaint is that i wish that ordway would have drawn this it's no, it's no slight Peter Krause or Peter Krause, because he does a great job in this. But when you look at that cover, oh lord, that is just beautiful. Yeah, I mean, he was doing fully painted covers for the series because the series launched off of his fully painted graphic novel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I I didn't collect it at the time because I thought it was an extension of the graphic novel. Because again, we didn't have the communication channels. I thought, why are they pimping the graphic novel again? Only to find out, you know, about midway through the series, opening up like, oh, okay, it's an ongoing. I completely missed an ongoing. No, and it, 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 for once, it was they were actually getting Shazam right too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think again that that's a tribute to Mr. Ordway, the extraordinary one, who who knows how to do comics well, both art wise and story wise, because this was just a barrel of fun. Page one, the opening splash. This is the only. This is the only complaint that I could have about Captain Marvel here. He looks great. I love the way his costume is drawn. I love the fact that his costume looks like an actual uniform. That mm-hmm. it's not it's not spandex, it's not tight anything. It's got wrinkles and folds in it. But I do have to say Krause draws Marvel's head just a little bit small for the rest of his body. I think I think that looks just a little bit off for me, but he and Mary just look really awesome in here uh, uh, you know i i didn't know that they were captured under rubble here but yeah this is it's just great yep they're busting up from the rubble kraus i, I think he and he's doing perfectly timed a, a daredevil digital book as well really yep kraus took me a while to get used to because you go from ordway to kraus and it's not that kraus is a bad artist by any stretch of the imagination but ordway is i mean he's jerry ordway <laughs> yes and we were kind of talking off air. One of my bucket lists was to have a piece of J- original Jerry Ordway art, which I do now. I have two, actually. Ooh. Because or- Mr. Ordway is – basically, he's he's a very considerate creator because I ordered the preliminary art he did for a poster, a Power Shazam poster with uh, Captain Marvel hitting Black Adam in, into some Tesla coils. So I have that original art hanging next to the poster. Just being Ordway, he decides to do this sketch on the shipping label, the shipping Ooh. pack uh, slip. So I have this kind of bust of Captain Marvel saying Shazam, and man, I almost did a backflip. <laughs> yeah, getting any type of art, especially from Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway, would just be just be so wonderful to have. Uh, yeah, and the fact that he – it just – it's a testament to how great these older artists are, that, that they're willing to go above and beyond you know, when people – have a likeness or or, or have a a uh, favorability who who enjoy their art. They're willing to go above and beyond and do something nice for them. So that just says 
such wonderful things about the guy. Um, pages two and three, Mr. Mind. Now, I don't know how an- anatomically correct because I hate worms, but I think Mr. Mind and, and this sort of uh, half page, two panel or this two page, half panel splash. He looks both menacing and goofy at the same time. And I, I, I think Krause or Krause pulls it off. You know, this giant worm with the big bug eyes, no pun intended, crashing into the White House is, like I said, just disturbing and frightening, yet kind of cuddly and goofy at the same time. <laughs> That's Mr. Mind in a nutshell, though. When he first appeared in the original Monster Society of Evil, which is a it was a 24 part series in the Golden Age Fawcett comics. I mean, he was he was a worm who orchestrated terrible, terrible things. Um, he was getting Nazis organized against Captain Marvel. Um, wow. It was, yeah, I mean, it was, and, and it grant, granted, a lot of that material, because it's from the Golden Age, was a lot, very racially insensitive, which is why you don't see it reprinted very often. Mr. Mind was evil as hell, and he became good for a little while. He lost his memory and became good. He's, I, I guess he's technically a caterpillar, because the original ending to that story was to have him change into a butterfly and become good, which, if you if you know anything about the original Captain Marvel stuff, it's, I guess, Archie-level because it was fun, it was a little bit goofy. I mean, there were superheroics, but it was straightforward fun. We we're unless it was Captain Marvel Jr., which was the darker stuff, oddly enough. But yeah, at the end, he became he got electrocuted in a tiny worm electric chair, and they stuffed his body and put it in a museum. So to me, <laughs> Mister My Kid, I can't make this stuff up. Ow! <laughs> but to me, Mister Mind has always had that weird mix of the macabre and just the the cute and cuddly. And I think Ordway, just like he did with everything in the series. He took the core elements of the characters and made it work with a 90s storytelling sensibility, which is not an easy thing to do by any means. No, I think I think there's a lot of credit needs to be given to Mr. Ordway for for taking a what is a very golden age, very child centric uh, idea of a hyper intelligent worm from outer space and turning it into a 90s style menace. So I, I think it's I think it's great here. Well, that's what he did with this whole book. It, it, I'll get on a rant in a little bit, but yeah, kudos to him. I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll, I didn't mean to go all Kanye on you. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I do like on the next page, I guess uh, page four, that uh, now Bullet Man. Did he have adventures with uh with uh the uh, Ted Knight Starman, or is this? something that you might be covering uh, in upcoming issues, or is this just a character that was sort of a one-off? Bullet Man was actually a Fawcett character. Okay. Fawcett had a, had a whole stable of characters, Bullet Man, Spy Smasher. So he was usually a backup in Wiz Comics. Uh, DC at this point owned those characters outright. He was used in, a, in the crossover with the Jack Knight Starman. Okay. So everything, it's all post-crisis retcon. Okay. Makes so they, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have met in the original iteration, but yeah, they there was a storyline, there's a lightning and star storyline to kind of address the events that, that are referred to with Abin Sur. Okay. Well and I, again I like that because um a few weeks ago actually I think yeah, a couple of weeks ago, uh in the uh, Green Lantern Core quarterly book that I covered, uh Abin Sur was a big part of that, and it was Abin Sur dealing with the events happening during World War II. So I like the fact that here that Abin Sura was a sort of staple, albeit, you know, a kind of mysterious staple of the DC universe during the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I, I, I enjoyed that. Now, um, moving on to the little scene between Max Mercury and uh, Impulse. What the heck happened to Bart's hair? I was trying to remember that myself. I remembered him being bald, but I didn't remember why. Okay. But I think he's wearing a wig as Bart and has his head shaved in reality. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe it's just, you know, a streamlined thing. But, you know, he's got the speed force, so what the heck does he need? Oh, whatever. But, yeah, this was just a... Uh, this was not a confusing. I mean, it was nice to see Max and uh, Impulse in here, but it was just one of those things that was kind of throwaway, and it was a nice way to that they could come in and stop the two people from turning the keys to uh, to launch a nuclear missile. Well, it also it shows what's at stake for one thing, that this isn't just Fawcett City or Washington D.C. This is actually a very real nuclear threat. It also those two pages are very much drawn. Like you would see in Impulse's book with Impulse having the thought balloon of his face with the X's, uh, his eyes with the X's in them. Oh, yeah. That's the very it's very reminiscent of the uh, the 2000s Teen Titans, not the Teen Titans go, but the original uh, Teen Titans animated thing where they get yeah. sort of anime type feel. So, yeah, well, I, I wasn't reading Impulse at the time, but I, I could see this kind of thing with my limited knowledge of Impulse, this kind of thing being a part of his part of his shtick. It's, it's very Humberto Ramos, so... Okay. Then uh, the next page we get... <laughs> the WTF Titans. I mean... Well, su- to, to DC's... I wouldn't say credit, but... For the context, I mean... You see Speedy or Arsenal there. He, he had already moved on. All of the Titans had grown up. Nightwing was an adult... Um, to have a Teen Titans group, you're going to have to reinvent the wheel to some extent. And sometimes that wheel ends up lopsided mm-hmm. and rolls like an egg. I think I think this is it. And I think what what happened with the Teen Titans or what benefited the Teen Titans with the sort of new version that I, I want to say was Peter David when he started writing Young Justice – that eventually sort of came into a new era of the Titans, that the inclusion or the the bringing together of the sort of new younger versions of the Teen Titans in, in Young Justice was probably what or reinvigorated that series. Because these characters, aside from Speedy slash Arsenal slash Red Arrow or whatever, and Captain Marvel Jr., I don't think... I know anything about any of these characters and you know, well, you've I, got Ray Palmer in there, but that's a little bit. Yeah. Different. Well, and that was also a kind of weird thing. This was one of the things where because of zero hour, he was de-aged to a teenager or something, yet he still maintained his, you know, a genius level intellect. So, uh, Wait, that's how is that a bad deal? <laughs> well, sign yeah, me up true. for that. Yeah, that would be kind of true. Yeah. I'm a teenager. I've got my youthful vigor and I'm really brainy. Wow. Yeah, that 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 isn't really such a bad thing. I really don't have any more notes until about page 11, which is uh, the first, which is the introduction of Hal Jordan in the book. And that uh, that first panel when uh, Hal flies in, I think Krauss is, and I don't know whether Darwin Cook's New Frontier had come out at the time. But I, I don't think it has. But Hal here has a very Darwin Cook type look, especially from the New Frontier book. 
I don't know if you noticed anything like that. I, I, as soon as you pointed it out, I'm like, yeah, I see it completely. But wow, I, I totally didn't catch that. That's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, but it's a, it's just a very clean look. And it it's a bit different from the way he's drawing the marbles. The marbles look a bit more like I want to say a bit more classic style. I mean, not the CC back classic style, but the sort of, uh, you know, George Perez, Jerry Ordway type style. Mm-hmm. While how looks a bit more. His line works, there's not much, it's not as much definition in him. And like I said, he's got that sort of simplistic, uh, clean Darwin Cook type feel. So I, I, I like the distinction between the characters. It fits especially for where the character is coming from. So yeah, I hadn't caught that, but now that I do, that panel has just endeared itself to me even more. Mm -hmm. Page 12, uh, my next note is on page 12, panel two. I don't get why Hal is being dismissive to Mary Marvel. I don't know whether it's the fact that he's just not aware of her. I'm assuming he would be because, you know, yeah, I think he would know the Marvel family or whatever. Whether Maybe this... not from the time he's coming from, though. That could be it. But, uh, you know, I just thought it was either it was either how being gallant in saying, and this would also fit in the fact, you know, him being from that time period, being... Don't worry, ma'am. We're males. We'll take care of this. We don't want you to get hurt. And I don't know whether you could whether you could posit that as how being sexist or how just being gentlemanly. I like to fall in the uh, latter category where I think it's how saying, look, even if you are a superpowered female, let me take care of it because that's just me being chivalrous. I think some of it is also how wanting to be a show off as well. I think that would make sense. You know, it it also shows it, it also plays into his character at the time of being kind of very sure of himself. So I like but then it. again, you have Kyle kind of asking the same questions. Like, why why did you put Mary Marvel on the sideline, dude? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, she's got the power of Shazam. So uh, again, you know, I don't really have any particular notes until page 17? Do you have anything in between there? I mean, the fight is just great. Again, like I said, you can see a distinction between, on some of these panels, between Hal and the rest of the characters. It looks like he's drawn a bit different. And, you know, I, again, I don't think it's the, I think Darwin Cook really wasn't around until later, but it, it's got that sort of same type of feel. So I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, they're pulling from a, a similar swipe file, to, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, my comment on uh, page 17 and this this leads me to believe that this all happened prior to the issue that we just covered issue 101 because in that third panel there Kyle whispers to uh, Captain Marvel that uh, Hal doesn't know what's going on so you've got to assume that this happened beforehand or maybe there was some miscommunication or there wasn't communication between the books or whatever, but I don't think it deters from the story in any way. It's just a different story. Just happens to be a little bit before. No, no, not a bad thing at all. And plus that's something you don't necessarily want to weigh an already crowded story with. Yeah. You don't want to have to, yeah, a little one-off panel saying that Hal's back. He doesn't know what's going on. We're going to deal with it in the Green Lantern book. It could be a way to also bring people who are reading Power Sam to go take a look at the Green Lantern books. So. 
I, I, my next note is on page 18 where Kyle gently kisses. It's not a romantic kiss. It's a very sweet kiss mm-hmm. on Mary Marvel's cheek. I love that panel. <laughs> Same here. And I, I think it's... I think it's another way of distinguishing Kyle. He's the, you know, he's not the Lothario. It's it's just one of those things that you do with someone that you have some closeness with. And I don't know how close or how much relationship that Kyle has had with Mary Marvel, but I think it's a nice, just really sweet panel. And I really enjoyed it as well. I thought, I th- I thought it was a really nice panel. And again, Kraus does a really good job with Mary's facial expressions, her eyes closed, she's smiling. She thinks it's just really sweet. And I, I agree, it's a sweet little, just nice thing to be doing to sort of break up this whole, or to, to, to finalize this whole thing. So well, it's, it's they, cool. They worked together on the Titans at one point. I know mm-hmm. that. Before this. But also, uh, I'm going to go on a geek rant. Okay. There, if, if you Google Mary Marvel and do an image search... You find a lot of lewd pictures of Mary Marvel, which, I mean, that's your right to search out. It's your right to make. However, I'd like to remind everybody, not only is she a fictional comic book character, she's massively underage. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, granted, I'm not even talking about when she, you know, down the road became, you know, black Mary Marvel wearing a black costume. But cheesecake poses where she's bending over, her skirt is up. Just, I mean, right at her waistline. Come on, dude. <laughs> there are characters you can slap some sex on, you know? Mary Marvel, probably not the best of choices for that. No. Well, and I think uh, that's why I like this panel, that it is innocent. There is no sense of sexuality or sense of lewdness in it. Mm. It's just Kyle saying, you did a great job. I'm glad to see you. It's it's good that things work out this way and I'll talk to you later. It's something that you would see between two people who have a a good compassionate friendship. And it's not done to be in any way lurid or anything. I think it and it embodies both the characters. But yeah, it is disturbing that people like to take these characters who in general I look at as innocent and tart them all up on the internet for their own I don't want to say perverse thoughts, but maybe that is the case because, yeah, Mary Marvel, in my opinion, should be, unless should be in general, should be a pure and good character. In fact, that's what the Marvel family should be. They are the embodiments of goodness and purity. So eh, that's disappointing that there's that kind of stuff out in the air. But I'm certain, what is it, rule rule 42 or whatever rule 37 or I can't remember which one it is that anything. <laughs> yeah. I know the one you're talking about though. anything, anything on the internet that you could think, you know, being turned into something sexual can be. So yeah. Uh, uh, screw you internet. Um, <laughs> see page. Uh, where am I here? Page 20. I like it here that captain Marvel is just tired of Mr. Mind stuff. Uh, I didn't know that Mr. Mind set off a nuclear blast near Fawcett City. And did you say that he killed? No, they they I, thought them dead. Mary, I, through a twisted set of events, was adopted as a, a baby because, I kid you not, and this is both Golden Age and, and the Ordway version, 
a nanny for both kids uh, was also babysitting a an infant that died. She switched that infant out for for an affluent family named the Bromfields. So Mary grew up with a different family, and Billy has just been adopted into that family. And yeah, they thought them that that couple, Nick and Nora. Yeah, I know Dick Van Dyke. I get it. <laughs> they thought them dead for a little bit. They found them in 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 the survivors category, but. So, I mean, in both emotionally, these are kids as well. Let, let me remind you of that context. They've just saw their town blown up. There are people that were dead, but also their their adoptive parents. So, yeah, they're pushed. Captain Marvel's really pushed to the emotional brink at this point. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can tell it on these pages that he's got Mr. Mind in his hand. And he knows that, that Mr. Mind's not going to stop. And it looks for all intents and purposes, that Captain Marvel is going to basically obliterate him and squish him in his hand. So I think this is this is a nice character moment with him that he's able to kind of show this idea that, hey, can be dark without being, or that he can be not really violent, but he can be dark without being too dark. That he he's can be willing tempted. To he could be yes. tempted to the uh, he'd be at the threshold. Well, and I think with the with the circumstances that you laid out, with his adopted parents almost being killed, that yes, you could see him coming to this brink. But again, you know, he doesn't. And uh, again, that is a an example of a true hero. They don't, you know, they can they can frighten people into thinking that they're going to do something to take your life, but in the end, that they don't. And I'm not I, I'm I'm not getting off on a rant in here. <laughs> not going there. Well, they, they it was played with in in Green Lantern 100 where Hal, you know, he made Sinestro think he was actually going to do it. Which I mean, I know that scene was played for irony as well, but you know, the speech afterward kind of is echoed here that I'm not going to stoop to your level. That's that's what a hero does is I'm going to do what has to be done, but right up to the point of doing the unthinkable. But. But thankfully, then we get Sarge Steele coming in <laughs> in the next panel and just pop with the with the Bibowski weapon. The Bibbo. Bibbo. Oh, the other uh, Bibbo brother. That is just that is a revelation that I will never be able to get over. Uh, that that is just so awesome that Bibbo has a twin brother who is a genius level scientist. That yep. is just <laughs> brilliant. Um, then we finally get up. Uh, the the last or the top panel on uh, the last page is like, hey, everyone, remember the Teen Titans? Remember <laughs> they were in the book? Yeah, no one remembers them. I remember Risk and uh, getting his arm ripped off. But that's that's a whole other thing. That's a whole Superboy Prime thing. And I'm, mm. I don't, I, we're way ahead of schedule on that. OK, but yeah, it ends with uh, the Marvel's triumphing and things being back to normal. And we're learning that. uh Peter Krause is leaving the book and Jerry Ordway is going to be taking over the next issue, which makes me sad, but makes me want to go out and pick up the next issue so I can drink in some delicious Jerry Ordway art. And the, the weird thing is, I think you mentioned some of the line work. I think Krause was not outright aping Jerry Ordway, but going from a style, going from Ordway style. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, if you can, if you can effectively not really mimic, but sort of homage an art style of someone who is considered to be classic and you can do it well 
and incorporate that into your own style. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially and, and even if it is in a book that's written by the person that you're kind of trying to ape. So I, I love this. I'm I'm really glad, David, that you got me to read this book because it makes me want to go and pick up more of this. I wasn't sure how you were going to react. I was hoping mo- you reacted how most people do with this book, which is you just you succumb to the charm of the book is what mm-hmm. it is. And again, DC finally got it right with this series after really failing the character for a long time. Because you, when DC got him in 73, 74, they're like, we're going to do what Fawcett did. We're even going to bring CC Beck on. And I mean, the character had been out of publication for two decades so, I mean, that was probably not the, the greatest starting point. And then throwing in reprints of the old Fawcett stuff into the Shazam series of the 70s, that's going to conflict kids. Then they went darker right before the crisis. Roy Thomas, of all people, did a fairly readable, very enjoyable reboot called Shazam! The New Beginning that just didn't quite take. And for years, they just could not place Captain Marvel in a decent place. And Ordway's like, let me do this, you know, this graphic novel. And from what I understand, it wasn't meant to springboard into a new series. It was just supposed to be standalone. And sure enough, they saw the gold in that. And this series, you know, it takes everything from the golden age. It doesn't turn it into something it's not. It doesn't turn it on its head. It builds off of that with 90s storytelling concepts in a very good continuity. One of the best character reboots of all time. I just... It's solid from beginning to end, to be honest with you. I could definitely see that. It's it, it has that sort of feel of the fun silliness that you'll get in the sort of golden age comics, but it's set with a modern mentality. It's set with modern risk, and the artwork and the storytelling are just wonderful. Again, I am so thankful that you came on the show and got me to read this because this is this is one of the things that I've been wanting to do with this show is find things from the 90s, a very maligned era in comics that are just fun to read and fun to take in. And this is one of the things. David, I'm so glad that you were able to come on the show and talk to me about this book. I'm glad you let me talk about Captain Marvel. So thank you for having me on. Oh, and anytime you can have an outlet to talk about that, I'm glad to have you do that. Dave... Since we're about ready to end the show, why don't we go ahead and even though, well, you've been on like (laughs) three out of the past four shows, tell us where you can be found on the Internet and what kind of things you're doing out there. Yes, I'm on the Marvel side, which is odd to say, but I I mean Marvel Comics with Dave's Daredevil Podcast at uh, DaredevilPodcast.com. I also will be returning to Pad Smash and Incredible Hulk Podcast. Lee and I have been cooking some stuff up as recently as last night before recording this, so... That is at IncredibleHulkSmash.com. And then I'm on Superman in the Bronze Age. I have a segment uh, about DC Comics Presents. And that's at SupermanInTheBronzeAge.com. And of course, by now you will have heard the third episode of Starman Observatory at StarmanObservatory.blogspot.com. With the fourth one coming up not too terribly far away. Awesome. I can't wait to, I, I can't wait to listen to that. Uh, you know, obviously... We're recording this out of order, so it hasn't technically come out yet, but I'm looking forward to listening to more Starman goodness. And this, with, this, this next episode, or this most recent episode, was really, really good. We really got back on the ball. Well, hopefully uh, there will be tons of uh, Gravity Rod references in there as well. Plenty of innuendos. That will be fun. I don't get it. 
Innuendo. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Just One of the Guys. Hope you guys have a happy Valentine's Day and keep your gravity rods safe. Bye, everyone. See, that I got. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsecore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Green Lantern podcast. It was. It, it, it all, in fact, awkward pauses are always awesome. Stammers, not so much. <laughs> no, and I, I hate getting that. I I go through, I try and go through my shows and edit out any you knows that I put in there because I, like I've said before, I will follow up a you know with a you know. And I just, whenever I'm, whenever I'm not reading something, or trying to uh, voice what I'm trying to say by myself, in order to continue on with something, I will either do a very long pause or I'll put a you know in there, and that just bugs the heck out of me. I need to try and get over that. You would think a hundred and some episodes I would be done with that. But, but that's like a natu- that's natural for you. That's how you speak in real life. And I understand, but it ju- it's, one of the, it's just me being anal retentive, I guess. Which, yes, is hyphenated. Um, I did play with the idea of reviving Superman Forever Radio and doing the digital first comics, but I'm not sure if the time is there or if, if, you know, after all this, the second big hiatus, if it would be able to come back. No problem. Yeah. I see. I've heard good things about the, uh, the Superman digital stuff and, you know, including, uh, who was it? Did you, yeah, you were doing the Smallville books. Mm -hmm. I did did two episodes over the first 12 Smallvilles, but Mm -hmm. they're very good. I mean, Trentus and I... Had to talk, uh, Mag- Magnus, yeah, His Excellency. We were talking <laughs> on Facebook, and and he he pointed out, you know, it's not just a new Superman continuity; it's a new DC continuity built around Superman. And I mean, it it if you if you were if you were lookwarm on the show, this is not 180 degrees, but it's more like a 45 degree angle. Now we really are doing a Superman story. We're free to to do all the things we couldn't on the show, and it's just been. I love the release schedule. I love having something there to go to every week. 
and having this big continuity. They just uh, wrapped up a Constantine Zatanna arc. Oh, really? Yeah, so, I mean, they really are growing that. I mean, you have Jay Garrick forming the Titans. Wonder Woman and Batman have appeared. It's just, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's firing on all cylinders, but man, it's good. I didn't, it did not, it's funny you mentioned that now. It did not occur to me last night, until last night, that essentially Man of Steel was another land deal. It was another land grab. This time it was just Kryptonian. <laughs> I was like, damn it. <laughs> oh my god. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she'll go to, she'll go, she went to the Avengers with me and she liked that. Uh, she actually sat down. I was watching Man of Steel up here, and she actually sat down on the couch with me and was watching Man of Steel. Now, granted, about time, where was it? It was near the middle of it. I mean, he had, I think it was right before he had exited the uh, the ship and, you know, just started uh, just started his leaping and learning how to fly thing. She went downstairs and did something else. But I think the one thing that drew her in was Russell Crowe. And she was afterwards, you know, she went and did something else. And she came up to me afterwards like, is Russell Crowe more in the movie more? And I was like, uh, yeah. Does he kick some ass in the movie? And I was like, kind of. You know, at the, end of the movie, <laughs> at the end of the movie, he's basically the AI for the ship. And I was like, yeah, that's... He, he does some pretty kick-ass stuff during that. So I think she would actually watch this movie specifically because, you know, she's got the hots for Russell Crowe. So. The cover price was a dollar five. The color... Fuck you, coffee. <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry, I was trying not to laugh at that, but... That's fine. Uh, it's getting me wired. <laughs>